0: The challenge with genocide has always been proving this special intent. Is there an intent to destroy that group in whole or in part? Justice plays
1: an important
0: role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments.
2: Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All right. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts, and I'm Stephanie van den Berg.
3: And I'm Janet Anderson. And this episode is done with
2: the support of Justice Info. We've seen many reports in recent months from activists and human rights experts and via the United Nations that says that at least one million Chinese Muslims are being detained in camps in the remote Western region of Xinjiang.
3: And the activists and some Western politicians accuse China of using torture forced labour and sterilisations. The accusation is that some of these practices amount to genocide.
2: China, of course, denies any human rights abuses in Xinjiang and says its camps are for vocational training and are needed to fight extremism.
3: We're joined by two genocide experts today to discuss what's known and what it would mean to declare that this actually is a genocide and what the world's reaction has been so far. So first of all, great to hear from you, Dr
0: Melanie O'Brien. Thanks for having me back on the show, Stephanie and Janet.
2: Mel is a senior lecturer in international law at the University of Western Australia Law School and also second vice president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars.
3: And we last had Mel on as a cricket aficionado. No, um, we actually had her on to comment on the genocide case between Gambia and Myanmar at the International Court
2: of Justice. And we also have with us uh, Dr. Evelina Ochap. Hi, Evelina.
3: Hello, thank you very much for having me. Evelina is a human rights advocate and she's co-founder of the Coalition for Genocide Response.
2: And Evelina, I know you're following uh, a lot very closely of what is happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. What evidence has been gathered recently?
1: Yes, there is a lot of evidence um, that has been recently published, and and of course just just a starting point, just to emphasize, when we talk about evidence, we we mean here the information and data collected by NGOs, investigative journalists, researchers, and and of course there was a report published by uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, that deals with the issue of modern-day slavery in Xinjiang, and suggests that there is evidence to, to state that uh, Uyghur Muslims are being used for forced labour um, and working in factories that produce um, apparel for, for many uh, companies that we buy every day, including uh, H&M, Calvin Klein, The North Face, Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Zara and many more. Also, in 2020, we've seen a report published by by Adrian Zenz suggesting that Uyghur Muslims, uh, women, have been subjected to forced sterilizations and forced abortions, and also emphasizing that we've seen um, a decline in birth rates um, uh, among Uyghur uh, Muslim communities in Xinjiang, which is, of course, yet another important report. Again, both reports, both uh, information contained in both reports still needs to be uh, scrutinized, still needs to be assessed by, by, by others. And if there was an independent inquiry, of course, this would have been done by, uh, by that body.
3: One of the groups that has gathered that evidence together and had a look at it uh, recently, and they aren't a court, even though they have a kind of a weird name, they're the Essex Court Chambers, which is a group of barristers in the United Kingdom. And led by a Queen's Council, They had a look at this kind of stuff that you're mentioning, Evelina. They were instructed by GLAN, which is the Global Legal Action Network, a human rights strategic litigation organisation, to look at all this stuff that's out there, Um, not to dig further but just to to say what their opinion is. And here's one of the team, Jackie Macarthur, describing in detail how they assess the evidence. We found that the picture as a whole presented what we described as a credible case
4: of um, genocide and crimes against humanity. The, the evidence probably could be divided into three main categories. The first is first hand accounts from survivors or people who directly witnessed the ill treatment in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region themselves. Um, as a general rule, this is the type of evidence that's often the sort of gold standard in any court proceeding, especially if the witnesses are prepared to come to the court to speak and be cross-examined instead of just giving a written statement. Unfortunately, although there are some more recent high-profile examples of people who have spoken out and have been reported on in the media, as a whole, as i said, there's not a great deal of this type of evidence currently available. The second category of evidence is investigative journalism and research by academics, NGOs, human rights groups, that kind of thing. There's a reasonably large body of work like this, which draws on a pretty wide range of sources. And we relied on quite a lot of this type of evidence. The sources that this kind of journalism and research can draw on can be really quite interesting. So, um, for instance, published government statistics about the birth rate in the Xinjiang region might show, uh, it does show a much steeper and more sudden drop in the birth rate than in any other part of China. Um, and conclusions might be able to be drawn from that about what's happening with respect to birth control. Or publicly available information about the rapid growth in the number of children being classified as orphans and moved from their communities into state-run institutions might also be used to to draw conclusions about the removal of children from families. Or published government data about the number of prison guards being recruited is used in some articles to extrapolate a sudden and marked growth in the number of prisons that are being used in the region. And one um, particularly interesting primary source that's used by some of these writers and journalists is satellite imagery from Google Earth or similar, which can show things like um, that a site that's officially designated as a job training centre is in fact surrounded by razor wire and has guard towers. How reliable each of the individual, credible each of the individual um, articles is depends on the article and things like whether the author sets out clearly and in detail the methodology that they use to draw their conclusions, whether they rigorously scrutinise the primary sources and also the reputation for expertise or reliability of the individual institution or author, but um, we found that there was quite a lot of uh, of sources like this that that met uh, a credibility, you know, a strong credibility standard. Um, And the third category of information is um, leaked Chinese government papers relating to the situation in Xinjiang, which have been pretty widely reported on and which we found particularly useful in our opinion for establishing whether senior government officials were likely to be aware of what was happening on the ground and the extent to which they were directing or instructing what was happening on the
3: ground. That raises a lot of issues for me, what she's describing. Mel, the first thing that strikes me is what is the difference between evidence that would suggest crimes against humanity and evidence that would suggest
0: genocide? Is it, is it possible to separate those off? They can. The evidence of crimes against humanity and evidence of genocide can be exactly the same thing because, and as we've seen through many trials through the international criminal courts and tribunals, we see perpetrators being charged for the same crimes for the same conduct, because something can be, for example, war crimes and crimes against humanity as well. And so essentially the the base evidence is the same. So what has happened is the same. If you take, for example, say torture, that is the same. But what differs are the chapeau elements of the crimes? So, of course, in Crimes Against Humanity, we are looking at a widespread or systematic attack on a civilian population. So that is what you have to prove for Crimes Against Humanity. Whereas for genocide, it's about the special intent, the dola specialis, the special intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. And that's the challenging part to prove for genocide so it's really the bigger picture context evidence that differs and that is very challenging and of course you can you know when you think about that there are similarities a widespread or systematic attack on a civilian population is very similar to the context of genocide where it is also essentially a widespread and systematic attack on a civilian population so the challenge with genocide has always been proving this special intent is there an intent to destroy that group in whole or in part by the perpetrators?
2: One of the m- most crucial bits is, you know, does this evidence of potential crimes against humanity, does it amount to genocide? Do you not have to kill massive numbers to have a genocide? And is forced sterilization and population control enough to prove genocide in international law? And Evelina, what, how do you see that?
1: is yes, of course for genocide we don't
2: need to see bodies
1: lying on the street. I think that there's some misconception in relation to that. Um, killing members of the group is one of the genocidal methods as under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. But if you look um, into Article 2 you see that there are other methods that we need to consider as well. And for example, one of the methods is imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group And that could include, for example, forced sterilizations, forced abortions. That will include also, uh, for example, rape and sexual violence and the consequences that it has upon the women uh, from the um, targeted communities. So I think we need to consider all those elements. And I just wanted to go back to... To the differentiation between crimes against humanity and genocide and, and of course Melanie mentioned that um, the, the main difference is the specific intent to destroy a protected group in whole or in part and this is a very difficult element to prove of course but I wanted to just emphasize what's been happening uh, in different parts of the world when states deal with the question of genocide they focus on the, the, the topic of genocide they sometimes they say we can't actually say that genocide is occurring and they end there rather than saying that okay if we cannot prove genocide we should look into crimes against humanity this is not happening Um, so we've seen uh, we've seen such debates for example in the netherlands back in 2016-2017 in the case of the yazidi genocide we've seen similar discussions in the uk uh, at the uk parliament we've seen similar discussions in canada and all those three countries have been um, for example saying that The determination of genocide is for international judicial bodies. Politicians should not deal with it. We cannot um, say whether all elements are proven. But they focus specifically on genocide, forgetting that, OK, if we cannot
2: prove the specific intent, what should we do next? Just briefly to nerd out on the genocide thing. I mean, we all say and we know that, you know, there don't need to be bodies on the street or mass graves to determine genocide. But Mel, going back to you looking at the cases where international legal bodies have determined genocide, is there any case that doesn't have mass graves and bodies on the street?
0: Uh, That's a great question, Stephanie. I mean, no, it's it's usually, honestly, genocide cases we do have. I mean, we look back at the Holocaust, we have 6 million dead. We look at Cambodia, we have 1.5 million, maybe 3 million dead. So, Actually, no, none of the cases that we've seen have that. But that doesn't mean that genocide has to have that. It's not an absolute requirement. As Evelina said, there are other crimes listed within the definition of genocide that say that have nothing to do with killing. You know, we have causing serious bodily or mental harm and we have preventing births. Although, of course, that is still connected to the idea of uh, physical and biological destruction. But we do have crimes within there that are nothing to do with killing people. So it can't be said that genocide only exists when there are mass killings taking place. That being said, I think in the case of the Uyghurs, we can still argue that because there are deaths occurring of Uyghurs because of the conditions of life that are being imposed on them by the authorities, you know, so they're dying from starvation, from overwork, Um, the types of deaths that we've seen in past genocides as well, basically forced labour and and starvation style of deaths. So not direct killing in the sense that people are not necessarily being, being, for example, shot or gassed, but this is the other genocidal crime of imposing conditions of life designed to destroy the group.
3: Let's just uh, listen again back to uh, Essex court chambers, to uh, some of the barristers who are working on this legal opinion. They describe for us how they approach this determination of genocide and this time you hear from Naomi Hart. When it comes to genocidal acts, killing members of a
5: protected group is the most obvious form, but there are other types of genocidal acts as well We gave very careful consideration to the evidence before us, and we thought that it quite clearly suggested that Chinese authorities have caused serious bodily or mental harm to Uyghurs in detention, including through acts of torture. Forced sterilisations, for which there is tragically abundant evidence, are an example of measures intended to prevent births within the group. And the evidence also speaks, we felt, to a widespread practice of Chinese authorities forcibly transferring Uyghur children away from their families, placing them in boarding schools or orphanages without their or their families' consent. We thought that this was sufficient evidence that there was at least a credible case of genocidal acts having been carried out. The question that we really grappled with and we found more difficult was how much evidence there was of genocidal intent. A person only commits genocide if he or she intends to destroy, in whole or in part, a protected group as such. Now, unsurprisingly, perpetrators of genocide don't typically declare their destructive intent explicitly. And so usually genocidal intent needs to be inferred from all the circumstances, taking into account factors like the scale of the atrocities committed and whether they were carried out systematically. And it's not an easy task deciding whether that inference can be drawn based on the evidence that we had. We formed the view that, especially when it came to high-ranking members of the Chinese Communist Party who were responsible for orchestrating the campaign against Uyghurs, there was at least a credible case that their intention could only be the destruction of the Uyghur population of Xinjiang. But we did stop shorter of a stronger conclusion than that. Despite all the evidence that is emerging, we didn't feel comfortable, for example, saying that there was a definite claim of genocide to be answered, or certainly that any uh, case of genocide could definitely pass the threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt.
3: Mel, what do you think that that means, that she says that there's a credible case against officials but not a definite genocide claim? What What is she meaning by that?
0: I can only assume that she's referring to the case law that has come out of international courts and tribunals that has a distinct emphasis on genocide being about physical or biological destruction and that has been the theme that has come through with most of the cases it's not to say that there aren't cases that say it's you know it's not just about physical or biological destruction because there have been cases around that the Jorgic case um, in Germany and then went through the European Court of Human Rights as an example but I'm guessing that you know this is a reference to this uh, growing jurisprudence about a focus on physical and biological destruction. Probably the idea is thinking, OK, we've got a great case that we can put forward, but whether or not the judges will actually see it as genocide is another story. Evelina, what do you make of uh, what she has to say?
1: Sure, I think my, my understanding of it is uh, is slightly different. I think what they're trying to say is that based on the available evidence, this is the assessment that, that there is evidence that, that would suggest genocide, but ultimately they are not in a position to say that this is definitely genocide. And of course, in order to have a um, definite determination of genocide, we would need to take this case to court. A criminal tribunal, whether international or domestic court, a criminal court would have to deal with all the evidence. So this was just an um, not just, it was a very important legal opinion, of course, but it is a legal opinion, not a judicial determination of the case. And we need to differentiate them. But ultimately, I think it is important to emphasize that at this stage, there is no court that would be able to do, this, uh, to do th- this job. So I think we need to be also a little bit more creative in terms of trying to analyze this information, analyze the data and make some kind of determinations. And those determinations should be used by states, for example, to trigger the duty to prevent uh, because ultimately that's the very purpose of, of such interim determinations of genocide and that this is not happening yet and i uh, just wanted to mention very briefly of course we know that, that there is a Uyghur tribunal run by Sir Jeffrey Nye's QC that will collect the information will have some hearings it is a um, people's tribunal so of course it's, it differs from a criminal tribunal but ultimately that will be one opportunity to deal with the evidence but again What will be the follow-up from it? We don't know at this stage.
2: If we look a bit at the world reaction and the pressures that uh, are on China, um, you see mounting things here. The Dutch parliament voted on a non-binding motion to say that the treatment of Uyghur Muslim minority in China amidst the genocide was the first such move by a European country. It followed a similar move in Canada. Mel, uh, is something like that also happening in Australia?
0: (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, sorry, but... (laughs) Um, Australia is always so far behind everyone else. So Australia tends to be a little bit a little bit slow to respond to these kinds of things. And I, I think looking at what's going on in the world, we have the Uyghurs, we also have Rohingya in Myanmar. So with regards to both of both of these situations I think are linked in in, in that's why I'm, I'm referring to them both, because of the connection to China. And Australia has quite a rocky relationship with China at the moment and a lot related to do with issues around allegations of spies in each other's countries and interference in each other's countries, even related to universities. So there's a, a bigger context going on when you think about what is Australia's reaction to this. So Australia is... is always on edge with this kind of thing and so they haven't really come out and said much to do with the Uyghurs in particular and are are pretty much yeah staying quiet most of the time about anything to do with China. That reminds me
3: of uh, what's going on in the UK. Evelina you're based in in London so I'm sure you're following this uh, closely. There's a kind of a genocide bill which has been trying to go through parliament and that's raised a huge debate about specifically the Uyghur population. Could you explain that to us briefly?
1: Sure. Of course, the the initiative at the UK parliament is actually not a bill, it's an amendment to the trade bill, which uh, and the trade bill is a government's bill. And the starting point of this uh, genocide uh, amendment was to introduce a new mechanism and to give the power to the High Court to deal with the question of genocide. Very much for the High Court to make the determination of genocide in a specific case. And as a follow-up, of course, uh, the next step would be for for the trade bill, with the state perpetrating genocide, uh, for this trade bill to be revoked. And because there was a lot of opposition from from the government and uh, just, just recently the, the amendment was at the House of Lords. It passed the House of Lords and now it's going back to the House of Commons in Ping Pong. The amendment as it currently stands is a little bit different. The amendment um, actually gives the power to a parliamentary committee to deal with the question of genocide and make recommendations to the government to follow up. So it's a little bit watered down, but that's that's a result of the very intensive ping pong that's been happening for for the last few 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 months. And of course, we still don't know what's going to happen once the amendment is back at the House of Commons. In any event, it caused a lot of de- very vivid debates, and and specifically on on the issue of the genocide uh, against the Uyghurs, um, because of course there is um, a lot of pressure on the government to uh, to stop trade with with China. Because of the atrocities against the Uyghurs, or to um, to an, at least not offer preferential deals to, to China, and this way put pressure on China, and I think this is very much realizing that right now there is not much we can do, so at least use trade as one way of of putting more pressure on china to uh, to stop human rights violations against Uyghurs. so it's a very creative approach of 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 engaging with the topic
2: Mel, you want to jump in
0: yeah. Just, just to add some things to the answer before, but actually goes on, ties in with what Evelina just said, the, a couple of the things that Australia has done, firstly, they have actually called for UN access to Xinjiang region, but also actually what the parliament is doing now is they're considering a law to ban the import of goods that are produced in China with Uyghur forced labour. So that's been introduced by independent Senator Rex Patrick. And that's really interesting. It's connected to what Evelina just said because it, this is a trade issue. And the, it's quite significant because one of the main products that has been found to be at issue is polysilicon, which is used in solar panels. And there's a, as you can probably imagine, a lot of people have solar panels for solar power on their houses and on other buildings in Australia. So so it's a really, this is a significant bill if it passes, because it's, it's very much needed in Australia in thinking about this one particular industry that we use a lot of solar panels. And so some of the companies that are selling solar panels here have directly been connected with the forced labour in the Xinjiang area. And through that, there's 175 solar companies that have actually signed a pledge to not use forced labour, um, but some of them haven't, such as the company Canadian Solar, which has denied using forced labour, but at the same time denied it even exists in the area and not signed the pledge. So actually putting a ban for Australia to do this and put a ban on these imports connected to this is going to be really quite crucial and hopefully it will pass in the parliament.
3: And just a last uh, point on this, a small one from Essex Court Chambers. I wondered really what it must be like being a, a barrister in the middle of all of this, where all you're doing is putting out a legal opinion. Uh, so here's Lorraine Abouadji explaining. As independent barristers, our focus was very much on the legal analysis that we had been asked to provide um, following our instructions and the evidence um, with which we had been provided. That said, It has been really great to see how well and widely the opinion has been received. And I think, importantly, how it's fitted within the ongoing discourse in relation to the situation of the Uyghurs. So it's come at a time where there's a real momentum building up in the international community. Um, And this is now headline news around the world. And so we we hope that this momentum will continue. Avelina, you actually do quite a lot of advocacy work in this area, I believe. Are you finding yourself being challenged on this? I mean, is the strength of the evidence actually starting to make those who want to defend China or, I don't know, defend even international trade much more determined to say you should not go ahead with this genocide determination? Are you finding your job harder now?
1: There are many pushbacks. Of course, of the recent ones we've seen more and more evidence of the atrocities which we cannot ignore and and of course and i'll just mention one example just few weeks ago uh, bbc published its new documentary about the use of rape and sexual violence against oiga women in in the camps and just just even looking what was the response from the government uh, from the chinese government first of all they banned uh, bbc Um, Second, they started discrediting the witnesses who who, who dared to speak up. So we've seen um, they disclosed their medical records. They they were uh, accusing them of lying, of being promiscuous. Incredible, incredible response. And I think it just shows that the Chinese um, government is... is more or less on, uh, at a breaking point. There is way too much happening uh, right now. There is way too much evidence for states to ignore it. So I think it's, it's really, it's a matter of time that there will be more movement in relation to that. But indeed, the trade with China is, um, it's a very difficult, difficult issue. Many states depend on this trade with China, especially now during this COVID, COVID pandemic that had a horrible economic uh, impact on, on so many countries. So states want to continue to, uh, to trade with China. Uh, otherwise, we don't know what's going to happen, but nothing, um, nothing positive in terms of trade. But ultimately, we cannot. Uh, sacrifice human rights. We cannot sacrifice the lives of Uyghurs um, in Xinjiang for, for the sake of trade. We need to find a better way of dealing with with the issue. But ultimately, it is it is very difficult difficult topic. But I think if we look at the U.S. and the U.S. approach to the issue, I think we've seen a little bit more proactive, proactive approach. And of course, U.S. imposed sanctions, uh, the Magnitsky sanctions against uh, several individuals from the Xinjiang region. Um, we've seen also uh, the U.S. blocking um, import of certain goods uh, that attained by um, forced Uyghur for labor. Um, So I think those are very important steps that should be followed by other countries. For example, in the UK we have Magnitsky sanctions that could be imposed on on various individuals who are involved in those atrocities, but there have been no Magnitsky sanctions imposed uh, on on any of them. We've seen more response from the government to impose sanctions in uh, in Belarus rather than, than the genocidal atrocities against a protected group that that has been suffering incredible atrocities over recent months, but zero response, zero sanctions there. So of course, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and I think the more evidence, uh, evidence is brought to light, the better it will be. But again, we need an independent investigation of the atrocities. And such an investigation could be done by the UN. And just over recent weeks, I've been working on two proposals. One is for the Human Rights Council to establish a commission of inquiry or a fact-finding mission to collect the evidence of the atrocities. And the second proposal is for the General Assembly to introduce something similar to the IIIM, uh, to collect the evidence and preserve it for future, uh, future prosecutions. Because ultimately, that's what we want to achieve, to, to, to make sure that we can prosecute those individuals responsible for the atrocities in the future. But ultimately, the UN must be more proactive and needs to take the step to, uh, to proceed with sh- such resolutions because at this stage, nothing is happening.
2: And Mel, if you look at this and, and what uh, Evelina is kind of uh, are advocating for, are international law mechanisms fit for purpose in a situation like this? You know, the Security Council states are able to block ICC referral. The ICJ also needs consent from a state. Internationally, what What can you do in this case?
0: It's a huge problem. It really is. And I think you make a good point, this exact question, like, are they fit for purpose? Because sometimes they are, yes. And overall, I'd say that we're better off having them than not having them because then we do have some kind of oversight. But we do have the problem, as you mentioned, of the veto power. And let's face it, China is a P5. So there's never going to be any Security Council resolution about the Uyghur situation, of course. I think that there are other ways that we need to be looking at. And we've talked about this issue of trade. And I think this is where we need to start thinking about accountability. Let's think outside the box. Let's think everywhere from the individual to corporations. Corporations are really big players in international law now and they're really big players in the world economy, of course. And so this is where we can see them, if they take their business elsewhere, out of those countries where forced labour is being used, then that takes money out of the economy in that region. And it also means that there's no money coming in to specifically pay for the forced labour So this is a starting point. Let's use corporations. Let's use businesses, international brands as accountability. And that can trickle down. I mean, I mentioned solar power before. This can trickle down to the individual. Start boycotting those corporations that are still working in there. So personal level, my partner and I are getting solar power and actually Canadian Solar was the company we were going to use. But now we're not going to do that simply because of their connection to this situation. And This is the way that the average individual person can actually take a role in holding people accountable, is not supporting corporations that are still in there. And I think this is a really great option, actually, outside of the traditional international law idea of accountability that we traditionally think about, you know, state accountability, individual criminal accountability. But thinking about money, because it hits them where it hurts, and and I think we do need to countries need to expand that, but also corporations and individuals in terms of accountability for for being involved in regions with forced labor and torture and these kinds of things.
2: When you talked about uh, solar energy and solar panels, it kind of uh, it invited me to take a bit of a detour. So I, one of the things I notice is that when we talk about the kind of evidence that people are gathering to show these uh, policies against the Uyghurs. There is really kind of interesting side roads. I saw uh, the Essex Chambers partly based on uh, named research that came out with the number of new prison guards uh, hired as evidence. Now, what is the kind of strangest but clever side wave you've seen used for gathering this kind of evidence where you thought, oh, my God, I never thought about this. I mean, looking at birth rates is a very obvious thing. Uh, satellite pictures of, of so called um, re education sites that look more like uh, what we would probably term a concentration camp with barbed wire and watchtowers. Um, you know, what's the kind of most quirky sideway evidence thing that you've seen?
0: I found it particularly interesting the statistics on the number of IUDs that were being distributed. So 80% of the IUDs in China are being used in the Xinjiang province. So basically they're saying, hang on, you know, there's only a tiny percentage of the population living there, but 80% of IUDs are being implanted in that area. So that immediately tells you that something suspicious is going on. Because what are the odds that 80% of, you know, of all IUDs that that many women have chosen of their own accord to have an IUD implanted, are very unlikely.
2: I'm going to say I know we are mainly women podcasts, but just for the men listening who don't immediately know what an IUD is, it's an implanted contraceptive device.
0: (laughs) Yes, interuterine device.
3: We've actually been um, slightly split personality, Stephanie and I, over the last couple of days, because we've also been talking Myanmar with a number of people. For example, the expert Leticia van Assam, who's been you know, really looking at how Rohingya activists can get accountability for their situation. And she wanted to know from both of you, do you think that there are lessons that could be learnt by the Uyghur from how the Rohingya actually pushed their cases forward via the United Nations, uh, how they got the Double m that's the mechanism for Myanmar, potentially set up, how they got things through the United Nations General Assembly.
1: Definitely. And and for example, uh, the two proposals that, uh, that I've been advocating for, one for the Human Rights Council, one for the General uh, Assembly, are also, to some extent, inspired by, by some of the steps that have been taken in the case of Myanmar and and indeed also if we look at the International Criminal Court of course we know that the there is a case that is looking into the situation in Myanmar and that was a very proactive approach taken by the ICC of course Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute but Bangladesh is and the question was whether the ICC would have the jurisdiction to look into the situation of um of the forcibly displaced Rohingyas uh, from Myanmar to Bangladesh and and of course the response was Yes, and um, and also the response was that um, the ICC could look not only into the forced displacement but also any crimes that were committed against the Rohingyas in Myanmar, and a similar case um, is now being advocated by a British barrister at the ICC in the case of Uyghurs, applying very similar arguments of forcible displacement from state parties to to China, which is a non-state party to the Rome Statute.
2: We also talked to international. Justice expert uh, Mike Becker, who was asking, is there a particular value or importance of an individual state declaring that another state is committing genocide? We've seen that done uh, in some states, um, but does it really matter on the international arena and will it matter for any kind of possibly ICJ cases?
0: Actually, this is really important when states talk about a a case being genocide because it doesn't not all genocides go to court. And I think one of the best examples for this is the Armenian genocide. Uh, there has never been a serious proper prosecution of this. There hasn't been an international tribunal. And obviously, you know, now there's there's no room for individual accountability because everyone has passed away. But what remains that issue is calling it a genocide. And so it's actually really important for the Armenian government Armenia, but also the Armenian people, for it to be recognised as a genocide, and the Armenian government does keep track of other states that have recognised the Armenian genocide as a genocide, and and there are quite a lot of them. You know, um, it actually, it, Trump's government did, which is quite amazing, quite recently. Not all countries have. Uh, Australia hasn't, for example, um, New South Wales has in Australia, but not. we haven't recognised it at federal level. But there, there is quite a long list, Germany, Russia, Poland, France um, and, and others. But that's quite important, the recognition for the people. But I think what we also need to remember is that genocide has happened whether a state calls it that or a court calls it that you know, a crime has always happened whether or not it has been prosecuted and someone's been convicted for it. So we can't just say it didn't happen. And I think genocide's a really interesting one because it's always, um, what could you say, externally declared. So uh, the perpetrators never self-declare, you know, they never say, we committed genocide. And it's always someone else, it's, it's, it's a political thing, it's up for, up to other states to declare it. It's up to academics, it's up to think tanks, human rights organisations, the United Nations and courts of course. So it's quite an interesting concept but I think we still shouldn't have to say, oh we have to rely on a state to declare whether or not it's genocide because it just is genocide regardless if it actually happened. Thank
2: you very much, both for explaining this. Uh, we are rounding up our podcast, and we always do that with our asymmetrical haircuts question. And the first one, and I already see Evelina chomping at the bit, is what did we forget to ask you that you still want to say?
1: I just wanted to to comment and and add to what Melanie said, and I absolutely agree with Melanie on everything what 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 she said. But I think we also need to remember that state declaring genocide, it's a, a form of interim determination of, of genocide. Um, of course, it's not a court de- determination. It's not a judicial determination. But it is a crucial determination also to inform its strategy and its response to this genocide. We cannot forget that this determination is not divorced from the duties that we have under the genocide uh, convention and the duties to prevent and punish um, the crime of genocide and also very important to, to remember that states do not have to make the determination of genocide per se. All they need to do is to, um, to determine whether there is a serious risk of genocide to trigger the duty to prevent. This is, uh, this is what the International Court of Justice said in the case of Bosnia. The duty to prevent is to be triggered at, at, at a moment the state learns or should have learned that there is a serious risk of genocide. But this is not happening. And this is a big gap that is out there. So states do not do the monitoring necessary to, to be able to analyze the situation, to make the determination, and then to inform their responses. We cannot forget that it is the state that is a duty bearer under the Genocide Convention, not international judicial bodies, not the UN. States have those duties and they need to act upon. You have a duty to act. You have a duty to prevent this genocide. So unfortunately, on this point, I will, I will continue, uh, I don't know, knocking on, on, on number 10's door because this is something that we need to do. We need to do better um, because the current approach is not working.
2: Mel, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that we, you feel we should have?
0: China is a state party to the Genocide Convention. They ratified it back in the 1980s, so they've been a state party for a while, but I think it's important to remember that the Genocide Convention isn't a human rights convention. It doesn't have a treaty body like human rights conventions do, you know, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example. So there isn't a monitoring body that can actually look at implementation of the Genocide Convention. This is actually something that is missing, And we have the Security Council, which is there to look at issues of peace and security. But of course, as we've mentioned, China is a P5, and so there'll never be any resolution come through about the Uyghurs there. So really, the only option we have is to hope that some small country who is as brave as Gambia will step up and actually take China to the International Court of Justice for violating their obligations under the Genocide Convention. Obviously, China is a different country to Myanmar, which is a much smaller country, generally a bit of a hermit state. So it doesn't have the international relations, um, but it also doesn't have the power that China does. So I think it's unlikely that there would be a country that would step up against China with the might that China has. And I, I say might and, and meaning, you know, economic power, but also military power. So it would be quite a significant thing. So it would have to be a really small country that essentially has no economic ties to China. But hopefully at some point, there'll be one little state that steps up to the plate before the ICJ to do that.
3: Another question that we like to ask our guests um, in the interests of bearing your soul to our audience is, is there Anything that you can think of that you've really changed your mind about in your career? Any mistake from the past, any failure that you would like to, to share with us? Anything that, that you think would be useful for people to learn from?
0: I think mine is probably more about trust in authorities. And I, over my career, I have lost faith in those who were supposed to protect us to actually do so, um, even my own government, who uh, almost day by day I dislike more and more. You know, we it's just the more I study in my field, the more I lose any faith that our governments who are supposed to look after us can actually do so successfully. And I have become more cynical about the UN, definitely. I think we're better off with it but, you know, and I and I teach my students this to always be very critical when they're thinking about the UN, but always to remember that the UN is the sum of its member states and those member states don't always want things to, you know, they don't want accounta- to be held accountable for things that they're doing. So I think that in thinking about the thing that has changed the most through my career is my, I, I guess, reverence or faith in or trust in in the government, um, you know, even my own government. And, and I speak at the moment uh, where we have a government where there have been allegations of rape in the Defence Minister's office by one staffer of another of a female staffer and there are allegations of rape against our own Attorney-General. So and and we have a government that essentially doesn't want to do anything about it. So my faith in <laughs> my faith in those who were supposed to lead the way to be representatives of us in in a democracy has just dropped through the floor. To be honest,
1: Evelina. Yes, I think uh, similarly, and um, as as Mel- Melanie, I I pretty much I'm every now and then losing faith in the government or the UN and so, and all those institutions that's supposed to protect um, and and defend human rights and and be there to implement them of course but i've seen also over the years that the civil society can play a very important role and whether in collecting the evidence collecting the the data that is is crucial for 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 the governments of the un to uh, to make so, some kind of determinations we've seen incredible initiatives from civil society including the, the people's uh, tribunals the china tribunal now oiga tribunal which is an important step forward, because right now, really, there is no one else who is going to do this kind of work. So I think we really need to recognize that where governments or or the UN international institutions are failing, this is where we've seen incredible work of the civil society stepping up and filling the gap um, that is there. So I think um, this is definitely a very important lesson, not to hope that the government, the UN, other international um, bodies are going to do something, but to work also with the grassroot organizations who are collecting uh, the evidence and are able to um, cooperate with, with others.
2: Potentially a more uplifting question, but that also very much depends on what you have on your nightstand, is can you recommend something that you're watching, listening to or reading? And I'll start with you, Mel, and then end with Evelina. But... Um, Tell us your lockdown, well, you do, I guess you're not in lockdown in Australia, so you don't have lockdown binges anymore. But um.
0: <laughs> We have been lucky enough to be very safe here in Western Australia because we closed our borders. So we did recently have a five-day lockdown, um, but, you know, that's pretty short, so I'm not complaining. Um, I'm reading about, I don't know, 12 books at the moment, um, but just to mention a couple that I'm really enjoying. Um, I'm reading one called Outsiders, which is about a handful of female authors um, and and their experience, including Emily Bronte, who is actually a relative of mine. My family's descended from the Brontes, so really enjoyed reading that chapter about her. Um, Other authors like George Eliot um, and Virginia Woolf are included in there. So really wonderful to read about the lives of these women and how they were different. And then I'm also reading the book Hidden Figures, which is the book that the movie was based on. And the book is a, is quite different from the film. So the film is very much focused on the lives of the three main characters in it. But the book has a lot more, it's a lot more academic actually. It, it has a lot more context about the uh, situation of racial discrimination in general and particularly about racial discrimination in employment um, at the time, the, the era as they go through um, that they're looking at. But really, as you can tell, both the books I'm reading are about Strong women who have achieved wonderful things, despite the times in which they lived being, you know, quite um, challenging for women to actually achieve anything, such as writing a novel or getting a degree in mathematics and then working on aeronautical space engineering. So, I highly recommend both those books.
1: Yes, I actually have the book with me, that um, so I can show it to you. It's the Red Notice by Bill Browder, and of course we. We, we discussed uh, the, or we mentioned, um, the Magnitsky sanctions on a number of occasions and especially as imposed in the U.S. against, um, those uh, who perpetrated the, some of the atrocities against the Uyghurs. I think this is an incredible book and, and of course, uh, uh, an, an incredible man behind the book, Bill Browder. And I think this book and, and the whole initiative, the, the Magnitsky laws is something that definitely challenged my understanding of of justice uh, and accountability because of course I I would love to see all those perpetrators in jail. I would like to see them before a criminal court but I think this is a different way how to deal with the issue and of course especially where we see the limitations of of the international domestic uh, judicial mechanisms. If anyone needs the book I can send it over and they can
3: send it over to somebody else. I think that will be the exchange. Great. Thank you very much, Evelina and Mel. Um, Really interesting to hear from two people who uh, think so much about genocide and really can explain in detail all the issues, all the problems, and all the implications of uh, what we've just been discussing. So thank you both uh, very much, and uh, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Thank you
0: so much
2: for having me. Thank you guys for making the time and all these different time zones. (laughs) Melanie giving up her Friday night to talk about genocide.
0: I got to go watch Drag Race now. It's Drag Race night.
4: (laughs) (laughs) This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by AudioNautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.